Good morning, everybody. On this beautiful Super Bowl Sunday, thank you for being here at the 1115 service. You're not cutting it that close. There's the pregame and then there's the pre-pregame where they talk about what they're going to talk about before the game at the pregame. So really, you're fine. Plenty of time to go get nachos. But first, before we actually get into it, I thought it would only be right if we started the service today with some interesting Super Bowl facts. I was online looking for facts about Super Bowl Sunday, and I was browsing an Epicurean website called Pursuitist, and I got lots of really cool statistics that I want to share with you. They will make your day. The first number is 8 million. That's the total pounds of popcorn that will be consumed today. 8 million pounds. Oh, don't stop there. 28 million. Total pounds of potato chips that will be consumed today. 28 million pounds. 53.5 million pounds of avocados. Avocados today. That's a lot of guacamole. 222,792. That would be the number of football fields necessary of farmland to grow all of that corn, potatoes, and avocados. A lot of land. 11.8 feet. The depth of guacamole that will be consumed today if it were spread out over one football field. 293,000 would be the number of miles of potato chips laid end to end, consumed today. Now this one, wow, 325.5 million. The gallons of beer that will be consumed on Super Bowl Sunday. And that's just at Paul and Dwayne's houses. Am I right, people? Four hundred and ninety-three Olympic-sized swimming pools could hold all of that beer. Now, here's where it gets real, people. Twenty percent, the increase in antacids sold the Monday after the Super Bowl. And seven million, the number of us who will call in sick to work on Monday. Wow. Not for pastors. That's our day off anyway. Now, allegedly, it was Alabama football coaching legend Bear Bryant who made the famous quote, offense wins games, but defense wins championships. Maybe you've heard that quote. I think the original quote was actually offense sells tickets, defense wins championships. But we attribute that to Bear Bryant. And so if you'll take out your outline, that's the first thing that we need to understand. Defense wins championships. Defense is important. And it wouldn't be a Super Bowl Sunday sermon without an inspirational football video. And so today we're going to take a look at a Super Bowl where the number one offense in the league faced off against the number one defense in the league. It was a team in red versus a team in silver and black. Let's take a look. Super Bowl 37 hung in a great balance. The league's best offense, the league's best defense, which would tip the scales. The answer came early. The Bucks' front four blew away the Raiders' front five. 
There was no place to run and no time to pass. Anticipating where the Raiders would attack, John Lynch and the defense held a decisive edge. Hey, Sluggo C! And they'll send Rice in motion, dropping Gannon, dropping Gannon, flush to his right, flush to his right, throws it down, it's picked off, intercepted by Dexter Jackson to midfield! Next possession, same result, another interception by Dexter Jackson. Dexter Jackson to the 40, to the 45, to the 50, he's to the 45, Dex Jackson out of Quincy, Florida, has two! Raiders, after the first series on the interception, have gone three and out every single time. Tampa Bay's defense punched the Raiders squarely in their unpatched eye. The result, just three first downs, only 62 first-half yards, and plenty of battered bodies and bruised egos. What's going on? Super Bowl 37, the defense has been lights out. Let's score, Bucks. Four, working as one. Four, working as one. Less than a minute later, the Bucks were in the end zone again. To his left fire. Oh! back 45 yards as our seventh return touchdown of the season. Dwight Smith. Jerry Rice got wide open down the middle of this deep zone and scores. The Raiders have it down to 34-21. The balance of power was shifting in favor of the league's number one offense. But with two minutes to go, Pro Football's finest defense delivered. Come on, let's go. Don't let up. Do not let up. Stop in the pedal on. Let's go. Keep your mind on the prize. Let's go. Dropping Gannon. Pressure coming by Sam. Third down. 18. Dropping Gannon. Looking Gannon. Looking Gannon. Those up the Dominance would not end. Here's the pass. It's picked off. Intercepted down the sideline. Floyd Smith with the ultimate exclamation point on Tampa's Super Bowl triumph. Dexter, MVP, baby! <laughs> MVP! It's just glorious, isn't it? I don't really think we need a message now after that. I'm so inspired. Come on. Now, let's be honest, okay? Uh, We know that defense wins championships. In fact, in the Super Bowl, there have been 11 times, including last year's Seahawks versus Broncos, when the number one offense played the number one defense. And of those 11 games, nine times the defense prevailed. Defense matters. 
And when you love a defensive team, there's nothing more satisfying than watching a goal line stand. When your flaky offense has fumbled the ball inside the five and your defense goes out there and they shut it down and keep them out of the end zone. And that's what comes to mind for me when I look at what Paul wrote in his letter to the Ephesians. He says a final word, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies against the devil. All strategies of the devil. Stand firm. That's Ephesians 6, 10 and 11. Now we've been talking about unleashing hope. And today we're going to continue by talking about defending that hope. Playing great defense. And to defend your hope, you must know your enemy. So please follow along on your outlines. Paul continues to write, We are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. That's Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. We have an enemy. And like any good football team, when you go to battle, you must prepare. You must know your opponent. You must play great defense, and you know that by getting to know your enemy. Now, for us, the Bible names our enemy. He's our adversary. His name is Satan. And the word Satan actually means adversary. And from reading things that Jesus said and some passages in the Old Testament, we can piece together that this Satan was once an angel. He was Lucifer, the light bearer. A beautiful angel who decided that he would ascend above the throne of God. And so because of this, he and the angels that followed him became the devil, Satan, and his demons. Now we must understand, Satan is not God's equal and opposite. Some people would say that Satan and God are simply two sides of a coin. That's not true. Satan is a created being. He is not hooves and horns, and he is not omnipresent. In fact, when Christians say Satan is really tempting me today, that's actually incorrect. Well, it could be correct if you're a really, really significant, important person. So it could be correct if you are the one person in the world that Satan is is going to attack. But remember, the Bible teaches us that Satan wanders to and fro like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He can only be in one place at one time. So it's really incorrect to say, Satan tempted me. But in reality, it's usually one of his demons or our own human nature. I think that we have to be careful of assigning too much overt demonic activity to Satan. And because I I found that there is a clever strategy that he uses. In fact, in the mid-1800s, French author and playwright Charles Baudelaire famously said, the devil's best trick is to persuade you that he doesn't exist. The devil's best trick is to persuade you that he doesn't exist. Now, there's much truth to this strategy. In fact, according to a 2009 Barna Research Group survey, 60% of people who identify themselves as Christians indicate 
that they do not believe in the devil. 60%. Now, this just, this is not 60% of the population. We're talking about 60% of people who say, I am a Christian. You see, instead, we've come to believe in Satan as just a symbol of evil. Now, here's what I find fascinating about that. If you read the New Testament, you see that Jesus is tempted. He's tempted to turn stones into bread when he's hungry. He's tempted to test God by throwing himself from the highest point of the city to be protected. And then he's tempted, as he's shown all of the kingdoms of the world, he's tempted that all of those things will be given to him if he would just bow down and worship a symbol. No, I don't think so. In fact, to say that Satan is merely a symbol of evil is really to cast doubt on the veracity, the truth of the entire New Testament. Because if you say that Satan is not a real being, then what you've done is you've taken not only the Gospels, but the epistles and the the letters that the authors like Paul wrote that said that Satan is in fact a literal being, and you've cast those things aside. So you're not left with very much. So I would challenge us all to remember that yes, Satan and his demons do exist. There is a supernatural realm. And it's of this realm we talk when we speak of spiritual warfare. Remember, Paul said that our enemy is not flesh and blood. Our enemy is not a human enemy. Sometimes as Christians, we have a tendency to sort of demonize maybe people of another political party that we don't care for or big corporations or maybe a school district that you're at war with or something like that. But but the truth is that it's not people who are our enemy. It is, in fact, this spiritual realm of demons who are constantly attacking us to try to steal our hope. So what I would encourage everyone to do today, and please write this on your outline, is that when considering spiritual warfare, the key is to have a biblical, balanced view. When considering spiritual warfare... The key is to have a biblical and balanced view. Now, as we've said, the majority of people tend to reject the reality of Satan. It's not fashionable to believe in a devil. But on the other hand, there are Christians who go to the other extreme. Maybe you've known some Christians like this. People who find a demon under every rock. People who find the devil at work in every single element of their lives. And I'm afraid that sometimes we do this to absolve ourselves of the responsibility for our own sinful choices. How many of you guys remember the 1970s? Anyone? Anyone here? You can admit it. It's okay. For me, it was a blur, man. I'm just ki- I was a little kid. I was a little kid. But in the 70s, there was a comedian named Flip Wilson. Any of you remember Flip Wilson? And his shtick was to dress up as a woman named Geraldine. I never understood this as a kid, but I laughed. And what was the catchphrase? The devil made me do it. The devil made me do it. And I'm afraid sometimes we who are believers who actually believe in the devil want to give him too much credit. And so we spend all of our time in our own minds fighting the devil 
instead of worrying about the things that we should be about as believers. In fact, Helen Keller wisely once said, it is wonderful how much time good people spend time fighting the devil. If they would only expend the same amount of energy loving their fellow men, the devil would die in his tracks of ennui. Now, I don't speak French, but I like saying the word ennui. What does it mean? It actually means boredom, lack of activity. There's nothing to do. She was saying that if we Christians would stop always looking for enemies to battle and instead start loving each other like Jesus commanded us to do, that we'd put the devil out of business. Now that is a great defense. Yet so many of us, particularly here in the logical, civilized Western world, where we are quite evolved... We see little evidence of the supernatural. And so because of this, we consider defending our hope against Satan as foolish because why would one spend time preparing for an enemy who doesn't even exist? And we convince ourselves of this, that there is no supernatural realm. And so why bother preparing? It would be like building a rain shelter in the middle of a drought or building a giant boat in the wilderness when it had never rained before. And you can ask Noah how that worked out. Doesn't make you popular. But Noah was right. You see, when we talk about playing great defense and preparation against the forces of evil, we are following a biblical command set forth to us by God, by Paul in the book of Ephesians. The dismissal of supernatural evil just to avoid looking foolish is like playing in an NFL game wearing only shorts and a t-shirt. You're totally unprepared. Can you imagine walking out on the field against those big, burly, monstrous men in just shorts and a t-shirt? I mean, you might mesmerize them for a little while with your gorgeous calves, but eventually (laughs) they're going to wise up and you're going to get crushed. Or to use Paul's analogy, it would be like marching into battle wearing only your undergarment or robe, but not your armor. So let's unpack the scripture a little bit. When Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians, we estimate this probably around 62 AD. And so here's what the world was like in 62 AD. Paul was in prison, and we've talked about this before in the Hope series. Paul was in prison at this time. Um, He was in the Roman Mamertine prison, most likely, where he was in a very small, poorly equipped cell and was not able to do much. And life was pretty glum. It was pretty miserable. Jesus had died and then was resurrected and ascended to heaven about 30 years prior to this. And so up until that point, for the most part, Christianity was simply considered a part of Judaism. But by this time, it was no longer viewed as such. And Christianity was its own religion and was now illegal. It was illegal to practice the Christian faith. And so Paul was in jail. And not only was he in jail, but because it was illegal, most of his friends had deserted him. And Paul was living a very lonely life of solitude. In fact, according to the Bible, the only person that we know for a fact 
who would take care of Paul and would visit Paul and make sure that he didn't feel completely alone was Luke. So, here's Paul in prison. He doesn't have much to look forward to in his life. In fact, he didn't realize it at this point, but in about six years, he was going to be executed by Nero. And so, Paul, in the midst of all of this, as we have discussed, still maintains his hope. In the midst of a life that was filled with despair and loneliness, Paul maintains his hope. And he's able to do that because Paul keeps the God perspective. He knows that no matter what happens to his body here on earth, that he will live his happily ever after in the presence of the God whom he loves. And so Paul never loses heart. He learns to be content in all circumstances. And yet that's so hard for us. And I'll just be honest, it's hard for me. I can't speak for you. Maybe you've got a better God perspective, but sometimes I get so bogged down. And as we talk about spiritual warfare today, I have to say spiritual warfare is usually about very subtle things. Because remember, the devil's greatest trick is to convince us that he doesn't exist. And in spiritual warfare... I don't think it's overt demonic activity that we have to be on the lookout for as much as the little things that pull us away step by step. The busyness. We're all too busy. Let's be honest. As I've said before, even our teenagers, our teenagers typically have longer work days than their parents. We're too busy. And then the time that we do have, we're not in the moment because we're so distracted. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not a technophobe. I love technology and gadgets. You know, Fry's Electronics is my happy place. But but we get caught up. And if you don't understand what I'm trying to say, I would encourage you, you know, maybe go to a restaurant after the service and just look around at the families there and see how many of them are communicating and how many instead are each looking at their individual screen. We're forgetting community. We're forgetting how to love each other because we're not present in the moment. It's almost as if we were living out that Disney Pixar movie, WALL-E. Do you remember that movie? About the cute little robot and the human race had fled the earth and they were living on a giant starship because the earth was so polluted. And they would just float around in these motorized couches and look up at screens all day long. They wouldn't even interact with each other because they were so caught up in their virtual life. We have to start seeing things without that filter. In fact, just this past weekend, 47 of us loaded up on a charter bus and went up to Janess Park for our winter getaway. Also known to the parents as a break from my kid for the weekend. (laughs) They're cheering the loudest. You know, the truth is, is that it was an awesome weekend up in the mountains. And what we talked to the kids about is seeing life from the God perspective. Our theme was hashtag no filter. Does anybody know what that means? Hashtag no filter. Some of you do. Hashtag I don't get. In my day, it was called the pound sign and we liked it. (laughs) Well, a hashtag is simply a way to identify it so that an internet searches, it comes up and it trends. But hashtag no filter in the app 
Instagram, when you take a picture and you don't Photoshop it or you don't put any filter over it, it's just a pure, unfiltered picture. You tag it with a hashtag no filter. And so we talk to our young people about living life that way with no filter, seeing things as they really are, the God perspective. Now, I'd like to illustrate that because when we see the battle from God's perspective, We approach spiritual warfare and life in a new, hopeful way. So if you're following in your outlines, when we see the battle from God's perspective, we approach spiritual warfare in a new, hopeful way. To illustrate this, we're going to take a look at 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 8 through 23. And this is a story of the Old Testament prophet Elisha. Now let's talk about Elisha for a minute because I'm a fan. I don't know what you know about Elisha, but he's the one who succeeded Elijah as God's prophet in Israel. And we know that he was a righteous dude because he was bald. (laughs) It's important that everyone grasp this. All right, there is a tale of Elisha traveling to town through the wilderness And as he was going up to the city, some youths, some teenagers came out of the woods and mocked him. They said, go on up, Baldy, go on up. And Elisha called down a curse and bears came from the woods and mauled the youth. I think there's a lesson here for all of us. Don't mess with the bald preacher. I think there's a lesson there, right? I'm sorry, was that offensive too soon? Were you relatives of the youths? Okay, come on. So here's what was happening. Aram, the Arameans, were at war with the Israelites. And every time the king of Aram would plan an attack on the Israelites, Elisha would have that revealed to him by God. So he would go to the king of Israel and say, King, here's where the king of Aram is going to attack. And so they would either withdraw all of their people or they would prepare for the attack in advance. And so the king of Aram is going crazy because he's thinking, how is it? You know, it's like the guy's got my phone wire tapped. What's going on here? So we're going to pick it up in verse 8. And you can follow along. It says, when the king of Aram was at war with Israel, he would confer with his officers and say, we we will mobilize our forces at such and such a place. But immediately Elisha, the man of God, would warn the king of Israel Do not go near that place, for the Arameans are planning to mobilize their troops there. So the king of Israel would send word to the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he would be on the alert there. The king of Aram became very upset over this. He called his officers together and demanded, Which of you is the traitor? Who has been informing the king of Israel of my plans? It's not us, my lord the king, one of the officers replied. Elisha, the prophet in Israel, tells the king of Israel even the words you speak in the privacy of your bedroom. Go and find out where he is, the king commanded, so I can send troops to seize him. And the report came back, Elisha is at Dothan. So one night, the king of Aram sent a great army with many chariots and horses to surround the city. So here's the scene. Elisha, and he's with his servant, his prophet in training, hopeful. And they are in the town of Dothan. And the king of Aram's spies find that he's there. And so they send an army 
and its infantrymen and horsemen and chariots, and they surround the city. So what's going to happen now? Here's what happens. When the servant of the man of God got up early the next morning and went outside, there were troops, horses, and chariots everywhere. Oh, sir, what will we do now? The young man cried to Elisha. Don't be afraid, Elisha told him, for there are more on our side than on theirs. Then Elisha prayed, Oh, Lord, open his eyes and let him see. The Lord opened the young man's eyes, and when he looked up, he saw that the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and chariots of fire. Pretty cool. See, Elisha knew. He knew that even though he was surrounded, the people who surrounded him were surrounded by the power of God. He had the God perspective. As the Aramean army advanced toward him, Elisha prayed, O Lord, please make them blind. So the Lord struck them with blindness as Elisha had asked. Then Elisha went out and told them, You have come the wrong way. This isn't the right city. Follow me, and I will take you to the man you are looking for. And he led them straight to the city of Samaria, where the Israelite army was waiting. As soon as they had entered Samaria, Elisha prayed, O Lord, now open their eyes and let them see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they discovered they were in the middle of Samaria, surrounded in the Israelite stronghold with weapons pointed at them. When the king of Israel saw them, he shouted to Elisha, My father, should I kill them? Should I kill them? Of course not, Elisha replied. Do we kill prisoners of war? Give them food and drink and send them home again to their master. So the king made a great feast for them and then sent them home to their master. After that, the Aramean raiders stayed away from the land of Israel. Wow sent them a very strong message. And that's how to defend against the raiders. Thank you. (laughs) To reiterate, when we see the battle from God's perspective, we approach spiritual warfare and life in a new and hopeful way. So how do we spiritually prepare for the ongoing battle? How do we gear up to play great defense. Because remember, it's not a physical battle. It's a spiritual one. So back to Paul in prison. I can imagine him one day as he's finishing up his letter to the Ephesians, looking through the bars of his cell and seeing the Roman guard outside. And he probably looked at each piece of his armor and he thought, this is how I'm going to close my letter to the Ephesians. I'm going to talk to them about the armor of God. And so... Paul uses each piece of armor as an illustration for our spiritual equipment. So we're going to read the scripture and take a closer look at each piece. And then, because sometimes it's hard to relate to a Roman warrior, maybe we'll kind of use a modern-day gladiator too. Like, I don't know, a football player. What do you think? So here are the scriptures. A final word, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you'll be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in heavenly places. Therefore, 
Put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will still be standing firm. Stand your ground, putting on, and here we go with the armor, the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. In addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So let's look at each piece of equipment he describes. First is the belt of truth. Now for a football player, it's obvious. You can't march into battle as a football player without the belt of truth because your pants will fall down. And that would be pretty embarrassing. You can't play great defense when your pants are down your ankles. So, for the Roman soldier, though, they, would, they started their outfit with sort of a single undergarment. It was made of linen, so it was soft. And it was almost like a, a nightshirt. You know, it was really large, went down to about the knees. Then over that, they would put on a wool tunic. And then they would put on the armor. Well, the breastplate, which we'll get to in a minute, attached around the waist to the belt. So the belt was the foundation of the armor. It was also, and its most important purpose, was that it was the place where the soldier kept his dagger and his short sword. It was made of squares of metal fastened together, and then the buckle on it was much like our buckles today. But it was very strong, almost looked sort of like a Batman utility belt where you would keep your weapons. That was the foundation of the armor. And so Paul calls the belt the belt of truth because truth is the foundation for our armor. You see, in today's world, truth has sort of fallen out of fashion. A postmodernist will tell you, well, there really is no absolute truth. Truth is simply what you perceive the truth to be. And we've talked about this before, how that's just not correct. Truth is singular and truth is knowable. But it takes work. For us, the truth is knowing that God is our truth. God is the one who will fight the battle for us. And so Christ is our foundation, like the belt of truth is the foundation of the spiritual armor. Then he goes on to talk about the breastplate or the body armor. For a football player, this would be your shoulder pads. Now, the breastplate was generally, there were actually different types, but um, some were made of leather and those were quicker, but then others were made of tiny little rings of brass strung together. Um, For an officer, you might have a single piece of bronze or um, different plates of bronze that were combined to protect your vital organs, to protect your heart. That's what the body armor does. That's what the breastplate does. It protects your heart. Now, bronze was not the strongest metal, but it was light. And as you know, if you're a coach, your defense, it's good for them to be strong, but it's better for them to be fast. And the Romans knew this. And so we must have a breastplate or body armor to protect our hearts, to defend our hope. And Paul calls it the breastplate or the body armor of righteousness. 
That's what protects our heart. But see, here's what we have to be careful of. It's not our own righteousness. It's not the good things that we do. You see, righteousness means acts of righteousness, kindness, goodness. This is the body armor, but it is not our acts of righteousness. It is the act of righteousness of Christ who died in our place. If we rely on our own goodness, we will never reach peace with God. This is at the heart of the Christian message. Now, if you're here today and you're not really familiar, you're like, I, don't, I know Jesus, I know a cross, but I don't know much about the Christian faith. Biblical Christianity tells us that we can never reach God by our own goodness. We have to have a perfect sacrifice because, you see, God is perfect. And because God is just, He cannot let that which is imperfect into His presence. So we must be made perfect. And surprise, we'll never get there on our own. You see, that's the problem with religion. Religion is trying to do good things to impress God and earn His favor. But then I tell our kids this all the time. You can't do anything to make God love you anymore. He already loves you completely. What we have to do is acknowledge that we need His salvation. And when we receive that free gift, that's what being a Christian means. It doesn't mean we're better than anybody. It just means that we have accepted the free gift that God offers to everyone. And so it's that righteousness that will protect our hearts when we trust in Christ's righteousness. Next, he talks about the shoes, the preparation, the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Now, for a Roman soldier, the shoe was a sandal, typically a good chunk of leather. They usually put some nails in it for stability in the sides. And then the leather would come up around the ankle and they would strap it together. You know, for our modern football players, we have cleats. Isn't it amazing when you watch a football game and you'll see a player just step right out of his cleats? And then he just goes and he slips it back on. That's not good preparation. Thinking, man, you're making millions of dollars. Tie your shoes. <laughs> well, that's good advice for us too. Tie your shoes. Get your feet ready. The peace, the preparation of the shoes is from the peace of the gospel. All gospel means is good news. And what is that good news? Well, it's what we just described. That Christ died for us, and through Him, we can have a relationship with God. And it's that that prepares us by relying on that good news. Then he goes to the shield, the shield of faith. Now, when I say shield, it's something that protects. I'm sorry, what? Oh, no, 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 I meant another shield, another shield. There we go. There we go. This joke was approved by several committees. I don't know if we should let that youth guy talk anymore. What's he teaching us? Well, even though that was a little bit of a crude example, you get the point. The shield is to protect your vulnerable parts. Now, Roman warriors typically had two different types of shields. There was the small round shield for hand-to-hand combat. But then when they marched and formed the phalanx, they had the large shield that was curved. And it was actually made of wood and then overlaid with leather. And then they would have 
metal around the edges for sword attacks. But the primary purpose of that shield was to form an impenetrable wall. And when they were attacking or laying siege to a city, on the city walls, their opponent would have archers fire flaming arrows at the Roman soldiers. So what would they do? They would form the wall and they would hold up their shields. And if used properly, it would protect them from the flaming arrows. Well, Paul says our shield of faith protects us from the flaming arrows of the evil one. And I don't think I have to tell us what those flaming arrows are. Discouragement, despair, the feeling of doubt, the feeling of betrayal, of unfaithfulness, of trouble at work, of fights within your family. All of these things, these are the flaming arrows of the evil one. But it's our faith that protects us. And when I say faith, I don't mean a blind, warm, fuzzy feeling. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. And there is good evidence. It is not putting your faith in a whim. Trusting in God's Word is a very safe and solid place to put your faith. And we will talk about that in one second. But first, the helmet of salvation. Now a helmet, the Roman helmet usually made of bronze, but clearly it's to protect the head. When football players go into a game, every now and then there's chin straps not tight enough and you see the helmet pop off and, you know, you wonder, is the head still going to be in the helmet? Uh, but, but it's not. But it's to protect our minds. It's to protect our brain, okay, where the thought activity takes place. That's why we must have a helmet. And our helmet is the helmet of salvation. It's our relationship with Christ that will guard our mind. Jesus is our salvation, and it's essential for our survival as a soldier. We can't deliver ourselves. We need that helmet. And finally, the sword of the Spirit, which is the only weapon mentioned in the armor. I think it's important to know that when you go into battle, you should not go into battle with a partially deflated sword. What? Actually, the Roman soldier carried a a short sword. It was about two feet long, probably two inches wide, and sharpened on both ends. It wasn't the strongest sword. They had heavy long swords that they could take too, but they learned actually from the Spanish that the short sword was better for hand-to-hand combat because you couldn't do as much damage with one strike, but you had time for several strikes, and that's why the short sword was adopted by the Roman army. See, the Romans were very smart. And that's why they had conquered most of the known Western world at that time. And so, for us, the weapon is the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit. And let me say this about the Word of God. The written image of Christ. We call it the Bible. You might say, Mike, the Bible is just some book some guy wrote back in the Bronze Age. And how do you know this? Because I read it in the comments in an internet chat over and over and over. That doesn't make it true. Here is the truth historically of what we know of the Bible. The Bible is 66 books written by over 40 human authors, 
on three continents over a period of around 1,600 years, yet all unified in its purpose and message. There is nothing else like the Bible on earth. No other book of faith is anything like the Bible. And so I challenge you, keep your Bible at the ready. Know the Word of God. Now I'm going to ask the band to come forward. And I would ask you as we're wrapping up, don't forget, no one goes into battle alone. For great defense, you need a great team. As in the video, when the coach told the defensive line, four working as one. We must go into battle with our teammates. Do you imagine walking onto a football field to face the mighty Seahawks or the sneaky Patriots with just one person? No, you must have a team. If you didn't listen to Dwayne's message last week on community, go online and listen to it. You will see the importance of a community in maintaining and defending our hope. God gave us a team right here so that we can defend against the attacks of the evil one. And finally, I'll conclude with this. When we trust God's Spirit and we protect ourselves with His armor... We play great defense, and we protect our hope. But again, remember, playing great defense, it's a spiritual battle. It's not flesh and blood. We must not demonize people because they are not our enemies. And most often, when it appears that they are, it's simply because they misguided, they're misguided or they have bad information. What did Jesus say that we are to do for our enemies? Love your enemies. Pray for those who curse you. That's what we have to do. We have to love our enemies. Because in order to defend our hearts, our hearts need to be in tune with God. And again, if we go back to the fact that we're so busy fighting these evils that we have created in the world around us, that we forget that we're called to love, then we will find ourselves in a place of helplessness. We won't be able to wear the armor. We won't be able to wield the sword of the Spirit simply because we're in a place of helplessness. We have to stay connected with the power source. Remember the God perspective. Weeks ago, Paul talked about recharging our batteries. If we are not connected to God then we will not be able to defend our hope. We will not be able to fight the battles. So now the band is going to come out and we're going to have our offering. And so for our offering today, if you're here as a guest, we don't ask you to give financially. We just ask that everyone, as the offering goes by, please put your communication card in. And then the band will lead us in an awesome song And after that, then we will close with a blessing. But first, let's pray. Father, we thank you for all the blessings that you give us. Thank you, God, for this incredible news that we are going to be breaking ground so soon. And Lord, we pray that you would protect our hearts. Help us to play great defense. May we put on each piece of the armor every day as we go into this world and seek to love others and love you more. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.